Let me uh, invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. And we're going to look at Genesis 10, 1 through uh, chapter 11 and verse 9 today. As we work our way through the book of Genesis, we're just trying to find out or follow the way Moses marks out this book. Uh, in the original uh, manuscripts, of course, he, uh, and in the copies that are faithful to those manuscripts, he marked out the major structure of the book. Every time a new section comes out, uh, he uses a phrase uh, that's translated, these are the generations of, to let us know when he's starting into a new section. Uh, the last several weeks or months, we looked at uh, the fourth part of this uh, story, Noah's story, that went from Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9. Noah's story, of course, starts out with God speaking, divine speech, that prepared him uh, for the flood scene. Uh, after the flood, of course, and, and while it's going on, much of what we find in those chapters is waiting. There's waiting, waiting, and more waiting. They're in the ark for about a year until God finally moves to deliver them from it. And then at the end of Noah's story, in, in Genesis chapter 9, there is this section about uh, where we learn that God blesses Noah and his family, but also that there's a curse. I made the point that often in, in our world, in fallen world, this is the way it goes for us, that there's, mix, there's a mixture of blessing and curse, or blessings and problems. And, uh, and so that's, that's been quite helpful, I think, to work through. As we look at Genesis chapter 10, this next part, the fifth section, we come to what will become of Noah's sons. If you look at Genesis 10 and verse 1, you can see that phrase. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so this section will be about the sons of Noah and their descendants. And this section will go... Uh, far quicker. Uh, we'll take one sermon, Lord willing, at least that's what we did this morning, unless I feel inspired and uh, want to add stuff along the way. Uh, so we did one sermon this morning to go through Genesis 10, 1 through 11 and uh, verse 9. This story has two parts to it. It has a genealogy, that's what Genesis chapter 10 is, and it's usually called the table of the nations by most scholars that would look at it. And then after the genealogy, there's a short narrative, and that goes from Genesis 11, 1 through verse 9, and that story is entitled, The Tower of what? You fill in the blank. The Tower of... Wow. Say it again. The Tower of... Wow. Okay, you need to say it confidently. Uh, the Tower of Babel or Babel. Okay, for my whole life, up until the last few weeks... I always referred to it as the Tower of Babel. Okay, that's what I was taught. It's probably better to say the Tower of Babel. Okay, but throughout today, I'm going to say the Tower of Babel anyway. <laughs> I'll try to keep it one way or another as we go throughout here, but you understand it uh, could be pronounced in either one of those ways. Well, that's what chapter 11, verses 1 through, through 9 are about. Now, you might wonder at first why you should pay attention to these ancient texts. What might these have for you today? 
Well, I think there are many different ways we can answer that question, but I, I would perhaps answer that this way. These stories will tell us about one of the most pervasive, fundamental root sins that springs up out of our human hearts. One of the most pervasive, fundamental sins that springs up from our hearts. We're going to consider today something about our sinful hearts that God hates. Perhaps the root of many of your sins. Okay, so you got it. Ancient text, your heart. That's why we should pay close attention. Now, the way I'm going to preach through this is a, a little bit different. Um, you know, as you see chapter 10, uh, I'm not going to read every name in the genealogy. I know some of you would want me to do that, and others wouldn't. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point out a few things about the genealogy, especially how they point forward to the story, and then we'll spend most of the sermon in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And so let me start by making a few important preliminary remarks about the genealogy. This genealogy in, in Genesis 10 is a special genealogy unlike any other thing that we have found in the world. Scholars call it the table of nations, and they do so because Moses demonstrates the origins of 70 different nations. 70 different nations spring forth from the sons of Noah. <coughs> now, having said that, this table does not propose to be exhaustive or to, to be an exhaustive list of every nation or offspring that comes from these people. Matter of fact, every human being comes from Noah. Before that, every human being came from Adam. So it's not exhaustive. However, what Moses is doing is he's tracing those nations to whom Israel in ancient times would have been most familiar. These would be the nations surrounding them. These would be the nations in some cases that they would have taken the land from. And so Moses is going to zero in on those 70 nations that are closest to Israel. I also want to mention something that was interesting to me about the genealogy this week, and, and that is that many of the names found in the list in Genesis 10 actually lived after the events of Genesis 11. Okay, in other words, Genesis 10 and 11 are out of chronological sequence. You say, well, how do you know that? Okay, look at Genesis 10 and verse 5. Okay, this is pretty easy to an alert reader. Genesis 10 verse 5, when talking about the sons of Japheth, he says, from these the coastland people spread in the lands each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Each with their own language. Now go to chapter 11 and verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language. Okay, so you see that? 10.5. Each had their own languages. 11.1. They have one language and one lip, or the same words. And it's even closer than that in, in other places in the chapter. So like, for instance, look at verse 31 of chapter 10. When talking about the sons of Shem, he says, by their clans, their languages, plural, their lands and their nations. And then 11.1, now the earth had one language. Okay, and so I think that begs the question, why would Moses write this way? Why does he describe many events that occur um, after the tower, and then put the tower beyond it. I, I think, from my perspective, the, the reason he would do that would be to establish a pattern that you see all throughout your Bible. 
starts in creation and it continues. And that is normally that grace, God's goodness and grace to humanity is followed with a problem or sin. Okay, so genealogy, Genesis 10, Table of Nations, this is how graciously God gives 70 nations from these three sons followed by a problem. Okay, and all you got to do is read in your Bible in the Pentateuch and Joshua and into the Judges to see this repeating over and over and over again. God intervenes, he gives grace, he helps, and then sin or failure. I think by doing this also, I would add that the end of chapter 11 will give the solution to the problem. Tower of Babel, there's a problem, there's sin, there's punishment, but then the solution comes in the son of Shem, the sons of Shem, who will be the seed of the women, of the, of the woman who will crush the head of Satan. So it allows Moses to put the problem right before the solution uh, later on in the chapter. <laughs> now, having said that, there are two parts of this genealogy that stand out in Genesis 10 because they break the formula. You know, normally when you're reading through genealogy, you get into this pattern, uh, you know, so-and-so begets so-and-so and so-and-so and so on. And, and, and yet, at times, there's a break in the pattern, and there are two breaks in the pattern that I've detected in chapter 10 and what's interesting is these two breaks point you ahead to the story in Genesis 11. So let, let me point out these two breaks to you. First, in verses 8 through 12, you, uh, uh, are, we're, we're, we see that Moses slows down and he considers the name of a man by the name of Nimrod. Okay, look, look at verse 8. It says, Cush uh, fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. Here, the most prominent aspect of Nimrod's life that sticks out in this text is the word mighty. He is mighty. It's repeated three times. He's not only a mighty hunter, it says he's a mighty man. He's the first of the mighty men. You can see his might clearly when you measure all of the cities that he built. Okay, and you see, it's interesting to me that Moses describes it this way. This was in his kingdom. These cities were a part of his kingdom. So it seems like he's some sort of ruler building these massive cities. He builds cities like Babel in Babylon, and then he moves along later to Assyria, and he builds cities like Nineveh, the capital of that city, which becomes an important city in the rest of the Bible. Okay? Now, one of the things I'd point out is, for some reason, he moves from Babylon to Nineveh, and chapter 11 might reveal a little bit of that to us and the reason why he moves from Babel on over. The final thing I would mention about Nimrod that I think is important is the meaning of his name. Okay, so... Uh, I don't hear the English name Nimrod being used very much anymore. If you're a parent thinking about child's name, uh, you know, you could consider this one, I guess. Uh, now, um, the name means we will rebel. Okay, so it might not be a good name uh, anyway. Okay, so we've got this information about Nimrod, this powerful man, this mighty man who had a kingdom, who built cities like Babel, that we're going to learn about in the very next chapter. 
and his name means we will rebel. Beyond that, the, the second time that there's a break in the genealogy is in verse 25 with a man by the name of Peleg. So look, look in your Bible at verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, and this is how it breaks right here with this phrase. For in his days the earth was divided. Okay, and so Peleg's name means division. But the point of trying to figure out what the significance he is in the genealogical record here would be to interpret that little phrase, the earth was divided. Okay, and, and there are really two ways you could go on that little phrase. The earth could be in reference to the land of the earth. So even using the English term, sometimes when I talk about earth, I could be talking about land. But it could also be in reference to the people of the earth. Okay, and this is the way people kind of line up and trying to interpret. It could also be the people of the earth. When I use the phrase earth, I might be talking about the people on the earth. And so if this is in reference to the land, this might be alluding to some sort of cataclysmic shift um, or divide on the earth, the land. Okay, so some people take this to be in reference to some sort of like continental divide or something like that. That's the way I'd heard it preached growing up, so it was always in my mind. The earth was divided. It could be the land. Now, or, or it, it might also be the people that during Peleg's life, some sort of massive movement by God occurs that causes the people of this earth to be divided. And I think that that's likely uh, a little bit better of a view, and that leads us into chapter 11, the story. Okay, so I want to look at this story, the Tower of Babel, a succinct narrative with you. And it's, it's a powerful story, but it only contains nine verses. And I'll walk you through the story. I just want to let it unfold before you, and I think it'll make an amazing point to us about the evil that lies inherently in some of our hearts. This powerful little story covers only nine verses, but it has four scenes. So if you're taking notes from this point on, I'll try to tell you what these scenes are from my perspective. I'll give titles to them and we'll read through them. Nine verses, four scenes. Scene number one is what I would call settling on a plane. On a plane. Settling on a plane. Let's look at verses one and two. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So in this flashback, Moses begins, he goes back to a time when the whole earth had one language, and he's going to explain to us where the multiple languages in the world come from. Now at first glance, when you look at this first scene, you might not think there's much to it. And, and I think we'll go very quickly through it. The people, they, they're migrating out Okay, they're obeying the command from Genesis chapter 9, which said that they are to multiply and bring forth seed and to fill the whole earth. Okay, so they're doing that until they settle in in the same location, a broad, flat valley in Shinar, which later be, became known as Babylon. Okay, so that's scene one, settling on a plain. That leads us up to scene two, where we can hear what the people are saying about what they intend to do on this plane. Okay, and this is just amazing to me, that the Holy Spirit would enable us to hear 
the words that the people are saying about their intentions. And this is emphasized in scene two, which I call planning for a project. Okay, so they're talking, they're planning about a project. You can see this in verse three and beginning of verse four. It says, uh, beginning of verse three, and they said, verse four, then they said, Okay, so they're speaking, we get to hear it. Look, look with me at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So this whole section has to do with what they're saying they're saying they, they're going to make some bricks so they can build a city and a tower. It's interesting to me, though, that I think we get a true glimpse at the evil fundamental problem with their heart in the last three phrases in verse 4. And so I want to slow down a little bit and look at these phrases. The first one we consider is this description of the sort of tower they want to build. It says it's a tower with its top in the heavens. I like how one uh, commentator, Victor Hamilton, described the significance of this phrase. He said, the impression created here is that these builders are megalomaniacs. They're megalomaniacs. Had Moses simply wanted to say that they, they wanted to build a high tower, he had plenty of Hebrew words he could use to say they wanted to build a high tower. Instead, the builders say that they want their tower to reach up to the sky, up to the heavens. Now, it's interesting to me that in ancient times, the sky was considered the abode of God. Okay, the earth, that's the abode of mankind. The sky, the heavens, that's the abode of God. And so it's as if they're saying here, let's invade God's space. They're committing an act of sacrilege here. But I think their arrogance becomes even more clear as you keep reading. So look at the next phrase there. Consider the phrase, let us make a name for ourselves. Now, when you hear that phrase of what do you think? Any one word comes to your mind when you hear that name. Let us make a name for ourselves. Pride. Pride, thank you. That's the word I thought of. Sometimes when you hear someone talk, you detect pride, don't you? Just in what they're saying. This week, on a few occasions, I think God just led this way. I was listening to either a sports figure or a politician, and I'm hearing him describe different things, and he would make a statement, and I would say, that sounds really proudful. <laughs> well, I think that's the case here as well, and one of the ways I would show you that is just to trace a, a, a biblical theology of the word name. The Bible has a lot to say about that word name. So for instance, in Scripture, we know that it's the name of God that is truly significant. In Leviticus and Numbers, for instance, we learn that God takes it very seriously when someone swears falsely by the name. Many times it's not even the name of God. You just know who it is. It's like the name, capital N in English, right? Or um, when someone profanes his name, in Leviticus and Numbers, it it's, it's usually results in devastating effects. Leviticus chapter 24, for instance, uh, God says that the law of Moses requires someone to be stoned 
if they blasphemed the name. So as you're tracing this theology of name, you see God's name was to be hallowed and protected. I think many of you would realize that even later on, Jewish people would not even pronounce the name of Yahweh, of reverence to him. And so if you're building a biblical theology of the word name, you got that first. The name of God is the one that's truly significant. But to that in Genesis and in other books, we learned that for someone to make a great name for themselves, or for a great name for oneself to be given, that is only something God can do. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, the word name is used again. And I, I just want to point this out to you. Look at Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2. So look down your Bible. We're looking at the word name. <coughs> We're looking for it in Genesis 12, 1 and 2. And verse, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and will make your name great. So that you'll be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here the same Hebrew term is used. Oh, by the way, do you know what the Hebrew word for name is? Shem. Shem. Later on in chapter 11, we're going to see the same Hebrew word again for the man's name, Shem. I think when I, we went through this before, I'd be, I said it'd be like calling your boy comes out, what's his name? Boy. That's his name. Um, when Shem is born, his name means name. But here in uh, Genesis chapter 12, God will make a great name for Abram and will bless him, and God will continue to preserve the seed of, this, of the woman that will one day crush Satan through the seed of Abram. So as we're tracing this theology of name throughout the Bible this statement, we will make a great name for ourselves, is an act of defiance from these people. I want to draw just a few applications to us before we, we move on from this point. And the first one is this. As, as created human beings, we need to understand our role in this world. We won't get to choose our purpose or the significance of the role that we perform. That's what God does. That's up to him. We must reject putting ourselves first to pursue our own purpose or plan. And it would be completely futile to resist the one with the name and the one who assigns names, reputations, significance, as he so wills. These people, the builders of the Tower of Babel, are not willing to obey God, to make his name great, or to allow him to use them in whatever way he wants. And in that way, I think these ancient people of Babylon are prototypical of all people throughout all time who secretly or publicly scheme to make themselves known. And I hope that this is not true of us. So let's rest in God's sovereign purpose we will remain competent and sufficient as ministers of his gospel only if God desires it, if that's his role for us as his people. And so I ask you in this moment of application, have you ever surrendered your name in pursuit of your significance to God? 
I think this is one of the fundamental evil sins of many hearts. We want bigger followers or followings, more numbers on social media. We want to be famous for something. And so we scheme and plot and ask other people what we might be good at. Instead, let's give up the pursuit of our name for his name. In the future, in the telling of history, what significance will the name Brent Belford have? I think likely very little. And in the future, in the telling of history, what significance will the name Colonial Baptist Church have? And I would answer that similar, likely very little. But what we can do is we can line ourselves up behind the one whose name is deserving of worship. We can let others know that name and point people to him. Ironically, that's the only way, I think, to make a lasting impact in this world. One of uh, our sweetest members here recently just passed away. Her name is Kathy Diaz. Kathy passed away in the privacy of her own hospital room while under quarantine. You think of her legacy, I think, you know, what a way to end, but her legacy continues on because what she did with her human existence is she pointed people to the glories of the name of Jesus Christ, God the Father. So as we're looking at these phrases in verse 4, there's one more that sticks out to me, and that is this phrase, lest we be dispersed. God's command had been to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but the people in Genesis 11, they try to build a city and a tower so that they will not be dispersed, spread out over all the face of the earth. Their desire is to congregate together, and I think that that is a direct rejection of God's will and plan in Genesis 9. And so that leads us to God's response in verses 5 through 7. So this is scene 3, God's response. I would title it this way, leaving for an inspection. Okay, leaving for an, an inspection. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. It could be translated the sons of Adam. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Okay, so as you're beginning uh, in, into scene three, the scene changes locations. Now you're not, no longer in Babylon on a plane. Now you're up in heaven, and the Holy Spirit tells you what, what God does. Okay, now did you notice in verse five the way, God, the way Moses explains God. Fascinating, right? If you think about it. Moses has God coming down to see their city and tower. Now, why do you think Moses said it that way? Did God need to come down to see it? What's the answer to that? Are you awake? What's the answer to that? No, right? Why? Because he's omni 
present, right? He's everywhere. He doesn't need to come down and see it. God can see all things. So then what is he doing when he says, and the Lord came down? I think he's using an anthropomorphism. He's helping us understand more about God, using human language and human terms. But I think it goes a little bit farther than that. In that place, when Moses is describing God, he has the Lord God coming down to look at it. I think that Moses is using irony or sarcasm. And to me, it's really funny. It was just these moments you're reading your Bible, and you're like, that's really good. It's really good. These people, these builders, construct a tower that they thought would be so colossal that it would reach up to heaven. But it's actually something so puny, God can barely see it. It's to come down to see this thing, strain to see it. I use a little illustration here today. Uh, one of my children, uh, who remain anonymous, I'm never allowed to use their names in the pulpit, uh, enjoys watching Marvel movies. And I was watching a movie with him or her uh, recently. And uh, in this movie, there was a part where the Incredible Hulk pummels Loki, a powerful god. Right before the Hulk does it, Loki says, I am a god, you can't hurt me. Then the Hulk immediately beats him senseless and says, with a smirk on his face as he's walking away, puny God, puny God. Now, there's a lot wrong with the theology of that movie, okay? I'm not endorsing it for its theology, but I think it illustrates a point. When God looks at the tower, I think he says something like this, puny tower, puny tower. In our text, the puniness of man is set alongside the Creator's might. Maybe a better way to illustrate it than a Marvel movie would be with Psalm 2, where the psalmist David explains to us that the one who sits in the heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. Or better yet, Isaiah chapter 40, when Isaiah describes God as the one who's seated on the circle of earth, whose inhabitants are like what? Remember that? Grasshoppers. You know that's in the Bible? They're seated over the circle of the earth. He looks down, he sees the inhabitants of the earth. They're like grasshoppers. Sometimes I think we just don't get this. We are so puny, little, compared with the Creator God. So as we're looking at God's response, he comes down to look at this tower. And his response comes to them in like fashion. In verse 4, if you look at verse 4, they said, on chapter 11, they said, come let us build. See the come let us. And then in verse 7, you have God's response. Come let us. Let us go down. So people say, let us build, and God says, I think, to the Trinity, let us go down. And so the Godhead response here is powerful, although it might be a little confusing to us. We might think that a good response from God, looking down at this tower, would be to do something like this. You know, I'd probably say puny tower when I did it. Puny tower, knock it over, but God doesn't do that. 
Other towers could come and go. What God does is he decides to thwart their plans by confusing their language, which will produce chaos, destruction. They'll leave off in the building, and all, they'll all go their separate ways. And that leads us to the final scene, scene four in verse eight, and I would entitle it this, dispersing of a people. Dispersing of a people. Look at verse eight. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. What humanity had feared would happen, happens. They did not want to be dispersed. Verse four, that's the verb. They don't want to be dispersed. And in verse 7, that's what God does. He disperses them in his punishment. Of course, one of the things we learn here about God is those who exalt themselves, God will abase. They exalt themselves, they don't want to be dispersed, and God punishes them in that way. That leads to Moses' final comments in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Again, the note of dispersal is sounded. Third time word dispersed is used here. But then Moses explains that a new name is given to this place. It's the name Babel or Babel. Originally, the name of this city to its inhabitants meant uh, the gate or the residence of the gods. But what happens here is there's a change in some of the letters of the name so that now it means confusion, place of confusion. The gate of God becomes confusion and scattering. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and their new name here is not very flattering at all. See, men and women, God always has the final word. This is what happens when arrogant people try to stand in God's way. So as we're thinking through this, one of the things I would try to encourage you about is not to put assurance, assurances in any human government or human city or human achievement that you think will protect you or give you meaning. Nations come and nations go. Cities can be built, and cities can be destroyed, but God is the only one who continues on unaffected. Don't put assurances in human government to help you. They can go bankrupt, right? Especially when they're giving away trillions of dollars. Time and time again, they can go bankrupt. Our hope is not in any human government. It is in God. He is the only source of true hope, and his name is the only name worth advancing. Let's give up the pursuit of our own name for his name and rejoice in his abundant and great power to help us. Let's pray together. Fathers, we consider the story and the arrogance of these people who wanted to make a name for themselves. We recognize, Father, that this ancient story comes through to our hearts today. Lord, how many times do we wake up and ponder how to make our own name more significant? 
How many times when we think about our career or life choices or dreams, do those things all revolve around ourselves? Lord, there are perhaps some here today who have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ for their sins, and so all they could possibly be living for would be the glory of their own name. I just pray that you would help them to see that uh, there is something bigger, greater, that's, that's more important than our fallen human flesh, that, and then our, the, the frailty of our human flesh that, that extends uh, for, forever and ever, and that's the glory of your name. I pray that they would turn to you. And God, I pray that we as a church, Colonial Baptist Church, and we as individuals would be resolved today to care only for your name, not Colonial's name, not our own name, yours. And we'll trust you for the grace and help to advance your name well. Father, we pray that you would remember, remember that we are but dust. And that we need your strength and grace to make your name great in our existence. A frail human existence. Lord, I pray that you would do such a profound work in our hearts that we would gladly sacrifice the praise and the glories of our own individual reputations or the reputation of our assembly for the reputation of you. Help us to live this way, Lord. Empower us through your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.